Hi everyone, this is Michelle Bousquet of How Hacks Happen. Today I'm going to talk about what we can learn about hacks and scams from a pretty unlikely source, entertainment. A few years ago, I was back at college going for my master's degree in computer science at Boston University. At the beginning, most of my classes were about programming and data management. I liked it all, but I wasn't super excited about it. I had this really interesting advisor, this brilliant Russian mathematician, and we became great friends. We were having a coffee one day, and I was telling him about my favorite TV show, a fictional forensic investigation show called Crime Scene Investigation, or CSI for short. I loved this show, and I wouldn't shut up about it. They had this digital forensics person on the team, someone who searches computer hard disks for clues in the data. This sounded awesome to me, and I said, somewhat sadly, that I wished I could do something like that. My advisor replied, did you know you could study digital forensics here at Boston University? I got so excited, and we planned out my electives so I could take every single course that BU offered in digital forensics and cybersecurity. This is just one example of how entertainment can educate and inspire you. But there's a whole lot more there, more than just career choices. I happily got started on my digital forensics education. One of my classes was in information security, or InfoSec for short. This was a super intense class where we learned about everything from encryption algorithms to how to read network traffic and different kinds of attacks a hacker could make, all within a three-month semester. A lot of the stuff I talk about in this podcast I learned in this class. Most of my classmates had worked in IT and computer networking for years, and they were miles ahead of me. But I found it all really fascinating, and I worked really hard to absorb it all. So fast forward to a few weeks from the end of the semester. The teacher wants to see if we can actually apply what we've learned. So he starts this class discussion, and he says, suppose you're hired to assess the security at a bank. What are some of the places you could look for vulnerabilities? My hand shot up. If the tellers had something in their past that they could be blackmailed for, they could be compromised, I said. Very good, the teacher said. What else? My hand shot up again. The door from the public lobby to the private office area, it should lock automatically when it's closed, so people can't just walk in from the lobby. Excellent, the teacher said. What else? My hand shot up over and over again. Where were the security cameras? Did they cover the entire lobby and the ATM too? How long did they keep the security recordings? Were there any passwords written on visible sticky notes somewhere around the office? Did all the computers have their USB ports disabled to prevent someone plugging in a malware-infested thumb drive? The teacher finally said, someone besides Michelle, please and there was silence. I turned and looked at them and said, have none of you ever seen Leverage? (music) 
The difference between me and my classmates is that I binge watch tons of TV shows and movies about crime. Shows like Leverage, Hustle, The Imposters, Inventing Anna, and The Tinder Swindler. And heist movies like Ocean's Eleven and The Sting and Dog Day Afternoon and even A Fish Called Wanda. Welcome to TV University, or as my friend Sue calls it, TVU. Here's one I learned about from the TV show Hustle as part of my TVU education. A man walks into a bar with his dog, some sort of cute little terrier mutt. The man is clearly down on his luck. You know, his clothes have seen better days and he looks sad. While the man is having a drink, the bartender overhears the man talking on the phone about desperately needing money. Then the man gets off the phone and asks the bartender if he can leave his dog at the bar while he goes to the bank. The bartender says, yeah, yeah, sure. A few minutes after the man leaves, another patron comes into the bar and she sees the dog. And she asks the bartender about it. That dog, she says, is a rare special breed. And she's been looking for one just like that. Can I buy that dog from you, she asks. The bartender says, that's not my dog, so I can't sell it to you. She hands the bartender a phone number and says, when the owner comes back, please ask him to call me and I'll buy his dog off him for $5,000. And then she leaves. A $5,000 dog, the bartender thinks. Who knew this little mutt could be worth so much money? After the bartender has had a few minutes to process all this, the first man comes back. Even sadder now because his trip to the bank didn't go so well. The bartender, pretending to sympathize, offers to help the man by buying the dog off him for $1,000 cash. After some hemming and hawing, oh, it's the family dog, my son will be devastated, the man finally agrees to sell the dog. The bartender hands the man $1,000 cash, and the man gives a tearful goodbye to the dog, and he leaves. Now the bartender is very excited. He can call the lady and sell her the dog for $5,000 and make a $4,000 profit. Pretty nice money for a few minutes' work. But when the bartender calls the number, it's a bogus phone number. And the dog is a plain old mutt. Certainly not worth $5,000 and maybe even a stolen mutt to boot. You can guess what happened here. The sad man and the lady expressing her interest in the dog were working together as a team to rip off the bartender. In con man parlance, the bartender was the mark, and they just conned him out of $1,000. This is an old scam called the fiddle game, because it's sometimes done with a junky old violin instead of a mutt dog. It can also be done with a watch or a brooch or some other piece of jewelry. In any case, they're counting on the mark being greedy. If the bartender had done the right thing and given the sad man the woman's phone number, he wouldn't have gotten conned. But instead, the bartender decided he was entitled to some profit, and that was his undoing. And I believe that knowing about this con has helped keep me safe from other cons, too. For example, there's a scam nowadays that targets sellers on Craigslist. 
usually for the more expensive stuff being sold on there, like uh, three, four, five hundred dollars or more. A potential buyer contacts you and says, I want to buy your, um, let's say it's a fancy chair for $300, but all I have is a cashier's check for $1,000. But hey, I'll give you this check and you can keep $100 extra and so you end up getting $400 and then you can just send me back $600 in change. Wow, that's great, right? Nope, you're about to get scammed. The scam is that the check is fake, but it's a really good fake. On the day you deposit the check at the bank, they'll probably accept it, and the deposit will show up in your account. But then a few weeks later, the bank will send it back as a fake, and you're responsible for that entire $1,000. The thief probably doesn't even care about your $300 chair. He just made 600 bucks off you for doing practically nothing. When someone offers you easy money, there's a temptation to just take it without asking a lot of questions. The scammer is counting on some little piece of you going, hmm, haha, I'm getting an extra hundred bucks, without looking too closely at the logic of the situation. In the case of the cashier check scam, when I was offered $300 for my fancy chair, I asked the scammer, why don't you cash the check yourself and give me cash? He responded by saying he didn't live in my town and he was having the item shipped to him and couldn't cash it because he's not a USA citizen. Uh, okay. Well, surely you have friends you can ask to help with this, not some stranger? He didn't have an answer to that other than to repeat that he would pay by cashier's check and not real cash. This is when it started to smell really funny for me. If you really have no cash, how are you buying food to eat? Stinky, stinky, like a bad fish. All right. I'd swear that one of the main reasons I was able to spot this scam is that I've seen and read about so many scams, both in fiction and real life. It's taught me to ask a lot of questions, which usually scares the scammers away. Granted, most of the shows and movies I watch are fictional, and some of the crimes are very sophisticated or very ridiculous. But at the same time, from my TVU education, I've at least learned something about how criminals work and what kinds of emotional triggers they prey on. Greed is one of those triggers. Both the fiddle game and the cashier's check scam rely on a mark who wants something for nothing. Another trigger is our willingness to help. Oh, that poor guy, he has a cashier's check and no way to get the money. I will help him. Another trigger is loneliness and the promise of romance. Romance scams target both men and women alike. Oh, I love you, my darling. One day we will be married, but first I need some money. Can you please get $2,000 worth of gift cards and send me the numbers off the back? Scammers also operate off of fear. There's some awful bill or obligation, and you get a phone call saying that you need to pay this now, 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 before your electricity is shut off, or your grandson is sent to some nasty Mexican prison, or the police are gonna come to your door and get you. These are the worst kind. The kind that bully the naive into paying non-existent bills 
often targeting elderly people who really can't afford to lose the money. Some scams combine two or more of these emotional triggers. You get an email saying you've been billed $300 for some antivirus software or something, and you should call this number if you have a question. The bill is a fake, but you don't know that, and you just know that you haven't spent $300 on something, so you call the number. The scammer on the other end of the line says, oh, I'm sorry, we shouldn't have charged that to you. We will refund you that money right away. You just need to download this software so I can access your computer. But something goes terribly wrong, and they refund you $3,300 instead of $300, right into your bank account. How could this happen? It didn't actually happen. They just manipulated your screen to make it look like it happened. In fact, nothing has been sent to you. But you don't know that. And the scammer starts to act very panicked. Oh, my goodness, if you don't return the extra $3,000 I gave you, he says, I'm going to lose my job, and I have six children at home, and a bedridden mother, and a dog that desperately needs a prosthetic leg, just whatever he says. He's so panicked that he says, you can actually just return $2,800 instead of $3,000. Just keep the extra 200 bucks. Oh, now you want to help. He's added this generous incentive, and he's going to get in trouble, so you really want to return his money. So he says, all you have to do to help is go down to the store and buy some gift cards worth $2,800. You see where this is going. I can't even count the number of times I knew the answer to something because TVU mentioned it and got me interested enough to look it up and read about it. And it's not just me. My co-host, Carrie, decided to become a paramedic after watching a primetime TV show about a hospital. Being a paramedic was a lifelong career for her, and she tells me she never would have known this was even a job if she hadn't seen that show. And Sue herself, the friend who coined the term TVU, has changed the way she carries her credit cards because of a scam she saw on the TV show, The Imposters. And, believe it or not, my InfoSec teacher told me that the movie War Games was required viewing at every place he'd worked because it showed the dire consequences of overlooking the simplest of hacks. And he had been a chief security officer in both the military and at a Fortune 500 company. I've also heard that law school students are advised or even required to watch the movie My Cousin Vinny because the direct and cross-examination scenes in the courtroom are brilliant. And if you don't know what I mean by direct and cross-examination, you simply haven't watched enough cop shows or lawyer shows. After I graduated and started doing digital forensics for real, I was eventually called upon to testify in court about some findings. My boss warned me that the first thing opposing counsel would try to do was minimize my credentials or maybe even discredit me altogether. No worries, I said. I was very familiar with this tactic from watching Law & Order SVU. Thank you, Olivia and Elliot, for preparing me for that experience, which turned out to be pretty close to what happened. 
And now there are so many great podcasts you can learn from, too, like Darknet Diaries and Fraudology and What the Shell and countless others. Now, I'm not saying that you'll be qualified to perform an appendectomy after binge-watching Grey's Anatomy, any more than I was qualified to investigate a defendant's hard disk after watching CSI. But TVU can introduce you to new terminology that you can research on your own and make you aware of different aspects of a field that you might not ever have known about. Sue likes to joke that I'm a graduate of TVU, but in reality, I'm still an undergrad, learning from the comfort of home with a bowl of popcorn on my lap. I hope that, like me, you'll embrace your own TVU education and use it as a springboard for more knowledge of hacks and scams so you can stay safer from them. This is Michelle Bousquet from How Hacks Happen, working to keep you safe.